The following is a message by Dr. Peter Jones from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. First Kings uh, chapter 18. And I've given the title of my comments on this wonderful text, Carmel, the Antithesis in Technicolor. Should I say that again? <laughs> Carmel, the Antithesis in Technicolor. Obviously, we can't read the whole chapter, but the chapter is beautifully, concisely uh, focused in verses 17 through 19. So please, would you turn to that part of the chapter, 1 Kings 18, 17 through 19. This is God's word. Please give attention to the public reading of it. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you as uh, those who are hungry and wish to eat at your table. And we pray that you will feed us from your word. May we treat it with uh, care and respect, and may it speak to us powerfully. For we pray this in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So, Carmel, the antithesis in Technicolor. I was listening to the BBC World Service, as I tend to do, and heard two bishops uh, accusing each other of falsely presenting the gospel. Bishop Peter Akinola of Nigeria accused Gene Robinson of Vermont of breaking scripture, the homosexual bishop. And, uh, of course, Gene Robinson accused this black bishop of mistreating white gays the way whites mistreated black slaves before the Civil War which he feels is a fundamental um, treachery to the gospel. In that little moment, I felt I saw something of this uh, face-off between Ahab and Elijah. In a sense, verse 16 focuses what I want to say. It simply says, Ahab went to meet Elijah. This is one of the great confrontations, I believe, of all time. Think of Luther and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, or John Knox and Mary, Queen of Scots, or Moses in front of Pharaoh. The dialogue between these two men is fascinating. Ahab says to Elijah, Is it you, troubler or perverter or misleader of Israel? Ahab accuses Elijah of being a social misfit, bothering the interfaith peace that he and Jezebel 
had carefully established for the good of everyone, especially for themselves. Elijah's response is not long in coming. I have not troubled Israel, but you have, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. This is what I mean really by the antithesis, a profound, almost, yeah, an antithetical disagreement on the nature of truth itself. And this, of course, as you know, is really the nature of the case throughout history. This confrontation of two claims to be able to define truth. And we see it personified in the face-off between these two men. And it comes, obviously, at a time of national and ecclesiastical crisis. The fertility gods are not looking that good since it's a time of drought. But, of course, a time of drought, both physical and spiritual. And that sort of confrontation, we see it in our time, the two ways of conceiving of religious truth after the dryness of the Enlightenment project, people are now hungry for spiritual drink. And uh, there are two kinds of drink that are proposed, the toxic cordial of the age of Aquarius, the water-bearer goddess who promises to assuage spiritual thirst by the manipulation of the powers within nature. And to a strange degree, this kind of spirituality is now even being proposed in certain large swathes of evangelicalism. I could not believe it. On the other hand, there is the water, the life-giving water that Christ offers to that New Age Samaritan adulteress, assuaging her thirst in John 4 by the gospel of his atoning death. This, then, you see, captures the great face-off that uh, Abraham Kuyper noted in his Stone Lectures in 1898, where he talks about the fundamental contrast that has always been, it still is, and always will be till the end, the contrast between Christianity and paganism, the idols or the living God. So that's what I mean by the antithesis, which is incredibly personified in the face-off of these two persons. The first one, Ahab. Let me introduce you to Ahab. If you read the whole of First Chronicles, you notice that this long book is dominated by two important kings. Chapters 1 through 11, Solomon who was held up as the ideal king. And then chapters 16 through 22, Ahab, who really represents the great depth to which kingship had fallen. You sort of go from the sublime to the ridiculous. This is Ahab, doubtless regaled in royal robes and a mitre, manicured fingernails, a curled and cropped beard and gobs of aftershave, a Solomonic wannabe, looking much more like Herod, the last pagan syncretistic king of the Jews who aspired to be a Hellenistic potentate like all those little kings around him. 
of Ahab, it is said in 1 Kings 16, Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. And he married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. He was incited by his dear wife. Gender inversion is part of the scene, as it was at the fall, and is actually becoming a non-negotiable in many evangelical and apostate churches today. Jezebel is a piece of work. The daughter of Ethbaal, which means living under the favor of Baal, and she doubtless served as a priestess of Baal growing up. Uh, let me suggest to you guys to be, caref- be careful whom you marry. A word to the wise. Jezebel and Ahab doubtless believed in religious tolerance. Jezebel being the ambassador to unite the two lands and bring about cultural pluralism, regional peace, and economic prosperity. What a wonderful goal. Does it sort of ring any bells about our own culture today? Can't we all get along? To this ironic end, of course, this force behind the throne, and often in front of it, very ironically killed the prophets of the Lord. Just like today, pagan tolerance only goes one way, its way. Ahab is not the leader of his home. She is. He moans because he cannot get hold of Naboth's vineyard. She takes care of it with a cruelty unknown in Israel. Killing becomes official policy. Imbued, Imbued with a notion of truth as power, she tramples over the laws of inheritance, over commandments seven, stealing, eight, murder, and ten, covetousness, which specifically says your neighbor's house, without any sense of conscience. No problem, really, because the fertility gods of earthly power gave her and her boy toy all the justification they needed. This was quite a royal court, 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah eating at Jezebel's table and doing a lot more than eating, apparently, Second Kings 9 notes the many warrings and sorceries of Jezebel. A modern Old Testament scholar proposes to have found in certain archaeological digs the evidence of certain uh, ways of worship in apostate Israel where Asherah is seen as Yahweh's consort, just as she was El's consort in Canaanite religion. This should not shock you. This kind of a notion of the divine is becoming very popular in our day. What should shock you is the fact that uh, the Old Testament department at Utrecht University, where I was last week, sees this particular kind of apostasy in Israel as a good thing because it shows the relevance of folk or pagan religion for theology today. This is a whole justification of this way, this polytheistic way of understanding spirituality. Did Ahab and Jezebel see themselves the way Anthony and Cleopatra saw themselves as incarnations of Isis and Osiris 
namely as incarnations of Yahweh and Asherah. That would not surprise me. Well, this is Ahab confronting Elijah. What a contrast. <laughs> should make a movie of this one. Elijah is a true prophet. He looked like a prophet. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather, as other Old Testament prophets, prophets did. Think of Steve Bohr, Valley Center, Sartorial Chic. Um, he looked like a prophet, as Steve Barr does. <laughs> he had the authority of a prophet. The word of the Lord came to him, just as you read as a technical term, for instance, in Jeremiah 1-2, to whom the word of the Lord came. It's interesting, he is told to show himself to Ahab. It's the verb opthetai, which is often used for a uh, theophany in the Old Testament. And his name is, means Yahweh is God. So in his very person, as he appears before this apostate sinner, Ahab, he's reflecting the truth of God. It's a sort of at least a logophany, if I can make up that word. He has the status of a prophet. Indeed, you have to see him as a prophet like Moses. Both Moses and Elijah brought down fire from heaven. Both parted the waters. Both were given a theophany at Sinai and to cap it all, both appeared at the transfiguration of Jesus. And of course, he had the commitment of a prophet without compromise, speaking truth to power. That initial confrontation, which is actually my second point, leads to my third point, which is the confrontation at Carmel, the antithesis in Technicolor. How is this useful for us today? I think it is incredibly useful for us today. Because I believe we're living this same kind of antithetical confrontation. In, in Ahab and the 400 prophets, you see a deep expression of syncretistic, monistic paganism, employing pagan spirituality, pagan manipulation. They cut themselves, trying to oblige their gods to act using altered states of consciousness. They rave on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there is no voice. Because, of course, you cannot oblige God to do anything, and altered states of consciousness don't get you anywhere near the reality of the creation. And they're described as limping around the altar that they made. What a wonderful description that is, that their altar, like their religion, was of human fabrication, their worship of Asherah poles and green trees, the human deification of this worldly reality with absolutely no transcendence. Their only solution is intrinsic and esoteric, intrinsic from within, and esoteric going within, behind which, of course, is the disastrous black hole of personal disintegration. Alas, this kind of spirituality didn't die with Ahab and Elijah. 
but is really the default button of the worship of creation rather than the creator. We see it in spades in our time. Opposed to that is the theistic monotheism of Elijah, the faithful remnant. His action is not a spectacular miracle show of heavenly fireworks. His solution is extrinsic, exoteric, a response not from within himself, but from God, the creator and redeemer. And what he does is, very interestingly, a work of national and theological reconstruction, both in form and content. In the form, you remember, he repairs the altar of the law that had been thrown down. I mean, this apostasy took its role very seriously and actually destroyed all memory of true theism in Israel. He rebuilt it, 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. He did it, at, he prayed at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice in accord with the temple of Jerusalem. Nothing is haphazard. He actually says, verse 36, I have done all these things at your word. He's following a script, scripture. Scripture with its redemptive vision. As I read uh, Kings, it seems to me that the last time priests for temple sacrifice are mentioned is at the time where the temple is established under Solomon. And since that time, it had fallen into disrepair, but it's very interesting in 2 Chronicles 7.1, which of course in many ways repeats 1 Chronicles, when everything is in place, get this, when everything is in place and Solomon has obeyed the Lord and established the right priesthood and the right altar, guess what happens? Solomon prays and fire came down from heaven and consumed the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Little wonder that the fire comes down when Elijah reconstructs things the way they should be. But you can imagine the whole sacrificial system had fallen into disrepute. So what happens to the notion of sin? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Little wonder that Ahab and Jezebel could get away with their lifestyle without any trouble at all. The whole notion of a moral accountability to God had been destroyed. Then, of course, there's a theological reconstruction. The 12 stones recall the very nature of who is Israel, that they are God's people, chosen, special, holy, and redeemed. He builds an altar in the name of the Lord. He recalls who God is, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Let it be known today, he says, that you are God in Israel. You see, he reestablishes God as the Redeemer and the Creator. And that's the basis of the Reconstruction, even revival. When Israel and Israel's God are correctly named, the gospel is preached and God sends fire to consume the offering. The consuming holiness of God atones for Israel's sins via the blood of 
of bulls and goats. My fourth point is this, that there is a third personage in this text. It is the limping people who stand confused before the antithesis. We've seen the antithesis to start with, and then the confrontation between Ahab and Elijah, and now this face-off at Carmel, this other personage of the limping people. Elijah is motivated by a deep concern for a revival of true faith among God's limping people. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow them. Follow him. And the text adds this. And the people did not answer a word. They're in such a pitiable state These ignorant, confused people, one day worshiping Baal, next day nodding to Yahweh, that they are unable to distinguish between the truth and the lie. The antithesis makes absolutely no sense in their world. Multicultural syncretism, oop, I think I just spoke about our world, produces theological cripples with one foot in paganism and one foot in theism. It does sound familiar, doesn't it? Al Gore, the Southern Baptist Buddhist. Nobody thinks that's funny, but it's true, actually. Um, Little wonder people today are limping. Elijah does what he does in order that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you may turn their hearts back. He is working for a spiritual revival in a seemingly hopeless situation. And you know what? The people fall on their faces and cry, the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. This faithful prophet had brought this limping people to their knees and recognized the truth. My final point, more than ever, God's limping people still need to hear the antithesis if there ever is to be any kind of a revival. You know, I'm sure we'd all like to do the fire from heaven gig, if possible, on national television, with operators standing by to receive your gifts. (laughs) You know... At Carmel, God's final dealing with sin in the drama of the cross is prophetically enacted. In these last days, says Hebrews, God has spoken from heaven in his Son. The Son who had this particular word to say in Luke 12, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. In other words, Jesus knew he had come to preach a gospel of the antithesis. Choose this day whom you will serve is still the fundamental question, as Dylan understood in his song, You've Got to Serve Someone. Standing before Elijah and Moses at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, the final prophet like Moses, brings a word 
about his death. He talks to them about his exodus. And this is what he says about that in Luke 12. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. You see, it's at the cross that the fire of God's holiness consumes Jesus. The sacrifice for our sins, our vicarious mediator, which is the very good news of the gospel. Where are God's limping people today? I missed Escondido's fire from heaven. That's a joke, too. Because for the last three weeks I've been traveling and... uh, Three weeks ago, I was in a, uh, a monastery in Bogota. Um, it was actually a conference of reformed pastors from the whole of South America. And obviously, I was thinking about my message that I would speak today to you. And to my surprise, a tough-hardened Nicaraguan ex-Sandinista terrorist, now a Presbyterian pastor in Costa Rica, got up and read 1 Kings 18. This man who began to tell me later how he had organized uh, you know, terroristic uh, uh, warfare and, and every day his life was in danger is now living in a, such a criminal ghetto in, in uh, Costa Rica that he said, I wouldn't even want you to come in to visit me. And there he is seeking God's limping people, God's elect. God's limping, ignorant, Baal-worshipping people are in all our so-called churches today, from the mainline apostate groups to the mega and the emergent. They all need to hear Elijah's message of the antithesis. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Where are God's limping people? You saw one today in the mirror. You saw someone, someone like the crippled Mephibosheth, who was given a place at the king's table by grace alone. That's you, isn't it? We're a limping people. But we've understood and begin every day at the foot of Carmel, Calvary. But let me just give you a challenge. You who have understood the antithesis of the truth and the lie, that you need to find ways to share this fiery gospel of God's holy love for wretched sinners to the limping Christians of our day and beyond them to the rebellious pagans of our time. And do it with the same courageous spirit of Elijah, hopefully imbued also with the world-transforming words of another prophet whom I like to call a deuteromosaic prophet, the Apostle Paul, as he fearlessly took the gospel to the very center of the ancient pagan world with these words echoing in his ears. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, 
the just shall live by faith. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.